0: Father, Father, as we, Your people, gather here, we know that we are only Your people because of Your work. We are only Your people because of Your kindness. We know that we are Your people because of Your love for us and the love of Your Son for us. Father, as we look at Your Word, let our, let our study of your word not, not be merely an exercise in academics or intelligence, but let it be a matter of the heart. Father, let it be something that will affect how we live today and all the number of days that you give us. Father, help our study of the word to love you more. <clears throat> and help us to have it love our neighbor more. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Okay, one of the things you've heard me say is this thing too far forward or something? I don't, know. I don't know. One of the things you've heard me say a million times is that we're supposed to be thinking on the things that are above with Colossians chapter 3 in mind. Scripture wants us to think about things, it wants us to consider things, it wants us to remember things. In a little while, we're going to be considering and remembering what Christ did on the cross on our behalf. We think about it. We, we are to remember it. We're to consider it. Scripture wants us to think about itself, and I'm saying itself about Scripture. Scripture wants us to consider Scripture, and Scripture wants us to consider Scripture in the sense that Scripture wants us to hide itself in our hearts that we might not sin against the Lord. So Scripture wants us to think about a lot of things. And today I want to go and have us think about something that we don't like to think about. It's a topic that we sort of can can brush off because it's uncomfortable, but Scripture tells us to think about it, so we're going to think about it for the next 45 minutes. And that topic is death. Death in general, but more specifically, our death, personally, physical death. Now I know, I know, if if the Lord Jesus comes back on the clouds, like Scripture says He will, if we're alive, when that happens, we won't die physically. I get it. But anybody who's placed their hope in that for the last 2,000 years hasn't had their hope met. They've died physically. I would hope, especially if you are not a dispensationalist sitting here, that you're not a functional dispensationalist placing all of your hope in in the return of Christ while you're alive, and you're going to be either either raptured up out of here before the tribulation, or that you're just going to be taken up because Christ is coming back, because you don't want to deal with the reality of death. But Scripture wants us to deal with the reality of death. Death is a reality in this age. And Scripture wants us to consider death. Death plays no favorites. You know the old saying, supposedly Benjamin Franklin said, there were two certainties in life, and those are death and taxes. Cemeteries are full of people who thought they could beat death. Just walk one block that way. There are a lot of stones that have been in that ground for over 100 years. There are people there who probably thought they could beat death. You've got, you've got very wealthy people today who are still trying to beat death through technology, whether it's through... Through, through being frozen when they die or something like that because they're still trying to beat death. You, you see articles on, on your news feeds telling us that, that oh, we've got this solution now where, where we won't die. We will live forever physically. And they're going to find out that they're all wrong because they're going to die. Scripture tells us it is appointed for man to die once then face judgment. Not just lost men. All of us who are in this room today. I stand here as a dying man today because I'm one day closer closer to my death today than I was yesterday, and so are you. Paul told the Athenian philosophers in Acts chapter seventeen that the God who made the world and everything in it and He's made that from and he made that from one man. He made every nation of mankind from one man, and this God determined allotted periods for each of us. Every man, woman, and child, your date of death has been decreed by God, and there's nothing that's going to change it. Just like God decreed the date of your birth before He knit you together in your mother's womb, He has decreed the date of your death. Do you think the Bible wants us to consider our death? I believe the Bible does, and we're going to look at a passage today. That does that very thing. Let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes, and we'll be in chapter 7. We'll be in the first four verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 7 today. Say what you want to about King Solomon, but King Solomon was indeed given more wisdom and discernment than any man who lived before him or any man who lived after him. Not that he always used it well or rightly, but he had the gift. 700 wives and 300 concubines. Uh, <laughs> no matter what I say, I'm going to get in trouble here. So. But that wasn't the wisest Thing to do, let's just say that, especially since all, there were pagans in there as well. But the Spirit did inspire the wisest, most discerning man ever, apart from Christ, to write down some wisdom for God's people. He wrote down wisdom for God's people in four books, he wrote it in Proverbs. He wrote it in Ecclesiastes. He wrote it in the Song of Solomon. And he wrote two psalms for us. Now we know beyond that, Scripture tells us that Solomon wrote 3,000 proverbs. But for our our purposes today, the first four verses of chapter 7 is where we're going to be. And the first four verses of chapter 7 are really the beginning of his answer to a question that he asks in verse 12 of chapter 6. That question he asks in the last verse of chapter 6 is this, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? Much of what Solomon says when he talks about vanity, when he talks about vanity, vanity, all is vanity, or life is a striving after wind, in in a sense he's really just affirming what James says in James chapter 4 about life being a vapor a mist like a breath you take a breath it's gone it's cold out when it gets really cold here or it gets really cold up north you take a breath and you can see your breath and you see the breath come out of your mouth but then it disappears so is life in this age it's here and then it's gone if you look at just the format of how chapter 7 starts and just read what he starts writing and the instructions he gives us, it looks pretty proverbial. He's writing more Proverbs for us here. He's writing to tell us how to live the few days of vain life. And we're going to talk about this vain life and vanity in a couple minutes. But let's then read the first four verses of chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So if you know anything about Ecclesiastes, you know that Solomon writes using one word a lot. He writes using the Hebrew word hebel. And it's used 34 times. In Ecclesiastes, and he uses it five times in verse 2 of chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The King James, the New American Standard, the Legacy Standard, all agree with the English Standard here on the use of the word vanity here. The New English uses the word futile and futility. The NIV says meaningless. Your lexicons will tell you they're all right. But what do we do with them? What 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 do we do when when we see whether we see Solomon saying all is vanity, all is is futile, all is meaningless, life is a striving after wind. Don't read Ecclesiastes and walk away from Ecclesiastes thinking that there's no meaning to anything we do on here on earth. That's really not his point. Is he an old guy at the end of his life? writing about what he's experienced in his life, and he's trying to help other people to not go where he's gone. Yes, he is. There is meaning in life. We know that that the Spirit tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's meaning in the mundane in our lives. And Solomon isn't trying to tell us in Ecclesiastes that there's absolutely no meaning to everything. Solomon is not a nihilist, okay, where nothing matters at all. Things do matter to Solomon when you read the fullness of Ecclesiastes. And and I think he's making a bigger point here in Ecclesiastes, and I think his bigger point is is something that I will borrow from 2 Peter 3. I think his bigger point here is all this, all this, it's going to burn. It's going to burn. Our lives are a mist, a vapor. He's in perfect harmony with James chapter 4. Solomon says, chapter 3, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Does that sound like a guy who thinks that there is no meaning to anything? And he follows that up by chapter, in chapter 3 by saying, there's nothing better for man than to be joyful and to do as good as long as he lives and that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. And where did that come from? He says that's a gift from God. He knows who God is. He knows what God's like. The challenge we have, though, is, this, is with this word Hebel. This The eating and drinking, the gifts that God gives us that we're supposed to enjoy here in this life and this age under the sun, as Solomon would be fond of saying. Things that happen here under the sun because they're all temporary. They're all going away. Later in chapter 3, he says, what happens to man happens to the beasts. They all die and go to one place. From dust they came and to dust they will return. Solomon knows, even though he hasn't heard the Sermon on the Mount, that true treasure isn't found here. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 that true treasure is not found here. But Solomon already knows this. Solomon's had everything. Think about what Solomon solomon had. What solomon had everything. Wine, women, and song, as the saying goes. Power, kingdom, wealth. And it's all going to burn. I sold insurance for 15 years. In the life insurance business, there's a saying. You don't see any U-Hauls behind the hearse. Because nobody who's in that box, in that hearse, going to that place a block away is taking anything with them. They're not taking anything or anyone with them. And they all died. Once so far. And they'll face judgment. The question we have to consider is, how many people are going to die twice? How many are going to experience the second death? The second death in the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, let's go to the text here, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1. Proverb, a a good name is better than precious ointment. Now, when he says a good name, he's not talking about those goofy names that parents can give their kids. I look, I, I look at some of the names that parents give their kids, not just nowadays. I'm going to give you an older example in a minute. And you why do they do that to the child? <laughs> Ask a teacher who's had to read names off of a list. Okay. You, you look at the name. Why did somebody do this? Okay, in the 1960s, I'm going to use some archaic cultural references here today that I know are going to go over many of your heads. <laughs> But they matter to me, so I'm gonna tell them anyway. In in the 60s, okay, in the 60s, there was a rocker named Frank Zappa, psychedelic rocker. Okay, we got a couple nods of the head here. Okay. Now Frank Zappa was married. Frank Zappa and his wife had a child, had a daughter. He names his daughter Moon Unit. Moon Unit Zappa. Is that a good name? Well, if you're asking me, it's not. But that's her name. That's her legal name, Moon Unit Zappa. So, so <laughs> parents inflicting that sort of thing upon their children is not a 21st century phenomenon. In the early 1980s, Moon Unit Zappa has a hit song that we played on the radio when I was a disc jockey on the radio called Valley Girl, and it's not about Nellie Leiter, Okay. Nellie's a valley girl, but she's not that kind of valley girl, okay? So we had, to, we had to announce that this song is by Moon Unit Zappa on the radio. How can you do that with a straight face? I mean, but his point here is not that about what a good name is. I think you, you get what he's talking about. It's having to do with your character, how people perceive you. What do people think about you at work? Are you a good worker? Do you show up on time? Ask employers how hard it is to get people to show up on time at work, to show up every day at work. Now, I know that that back in in my generation, that, that was not an unreasonable expectation that when they hire you and they say, we're gonna pay you X dollars per hour, you show up at five o'clock in the morning at the golf course being ready to dig, guess what? You showed up at five o'clock in the morning at the golf course ready to wield your shovel. And it wasn't, okay, when you're 19 years old, you're really not a fan of getting up at 4.15 in the morning going to the golf course to be there at five o'clock in the morning when you're going to have to be digging stuff up in the end of April in Michigan where the, the frost is coming out of the ground and you got to find leaks in the sprinkler system and that water in the ground is about 35 degrees and you're standing in 35 degree water trying to find out where the leak is in the sprinkler system and they're paying you three bucks an hour for it. But they expected you to show up and do your job even if it was hard. Whether you were doing that or whether or not you were shoveling rocks at the cement plant in Alpena, Michigan or whatever, there is an expectation that you showed up every day and you did your job. And if you couldn't, if you were sick, there is an expectation that you actually called in and told your boss you weren't coming. Now, you talk to employers now and, and people will tell you that employers are told by their employees that that is an unreasonable expectation in many cases. How dare you expect me to call in if I'm not going to be here today? Well, somebody's got to do your job today, okay? But my point is, is, you know, what is our reputation at work? When we do go, are we lazy? Okay. Do we go to break 20 minutes early and leave break 20 minutes after break supposed to end? Can they trust us at work? Do they see you as somebody who helps out and does more than is expected of you at work? So do you have a good name at work? A good reputation? Do you have a good name among your family? Even if your family's not Christian. Even if your family disagrees with where you are on matters of faith. Does your family respect you for who you are? Are you a person of integrity? Even in the disagreements you may have with people. What are people going to remember about us when we die? Somebody asks, I don't want people to ask my kids... Now what kind of guy was Jeff? I don't want them to have to lie and say nice things about me if they're not true. I want them to be able to say true things about me that are good things, that are good character qualities, that are good, char- that are good character traits. And Solomon says here that all of that that makes up a good name, it's better than precious ointment. Four times in chapter 7, he says one thing is better than Another. He says better than 12 times in the entirety of Ecclesiastes. He says better than seven times in the Proverbs. And he does it once in the Song of Solomon. Now let's be clear on what he says when he says better than here. He's not saying that precious ointment is bad. He's saying precious ointment is precious. That's what, <laughs> that's what makes the ointment precious. But what he's saying is a good name is better than that. He's not saying a good name is here and precious ointment should be over here in the trash can. Precious ointment is good because you think about what they would use ointment for back then. When we, ten- when we hear ointment, we tend to think of things like icy hot that you rub on your sore muscles. But the kind of ointment he's likely talking about here is something which is sweet-smelling. They lived in an agricultural society. Our, our kids would call a lot of you folks city slickers. They call us city slickers now because we live in the city. City slickers tend to have this romantic notion about what farm and country life is about. Okay. They want to live in the country. They want to have farm animals. Well, you know what? <laughs> farm animals come with certain byproducts that are not necessarily sweet smelling. <laughs> that, that, I mean, you have no idea what it's like to live next to, for instance, a cattle cattle farm. Cattle are productive in more ways than one. And, and, and when you're downwind, you know it. Okay, I mean, there, when I'd go to the prison in, in Catula, okay, Jose never knew this. But when you, when you there's some place down there, probably about an hour south of town, where you're driving up on 35 and you hit this, it's like this wall of stench on 35, okay, and it's coming from an agricultural facility. Well, our kids our kids were in 4-H. They raised farm animals up north, and they raised hogs, amongst other things. Now, if you've ever had chickens, you know that chicken byproduct is not the greatest smell. You know that. Cattle byproduct is not the greatest smell, but I'll tell you what, hog manure is the worst. Okay? Our kids raised hogs to sell at the fair every year. And at the fair, people could come and and look at all the animals. They could go to the steer barn, the horse barn, the rabbit barn, the chicken barn, the lamb barn, and so on. And they had a hog barn where all the kids who raised their hogs had their hogs in there, in the stalls in there. And, and people from the, from the counties up there where we lived in northern Michigan would come to the fair every year, August. Well, you'd see, you'd see I mean, without fail, you'd see these, these wealthy women from the resort community, Harbor Springs on the other side of the bay, come to the fair. Well, first off, they come to the fair wearing heels. Why do you go to a fair in heels? But they, they'd come in their heels and then they'd want to go and see the pigs. Okay, wow, we want to see pigs. Well, they'd walk up to the, to the door of the hog barn and the, the, these two doors that were wide open and you could just walk in and look around. Well, they would get to the door of the hog barn and get to the point where the smell would hit them. And it was like they hit a brick wall. I mean, it was, it was, it was funny to watch because they'd walk up and you'd see them go, boom, like, and, and then they'd turn around and run away. Well, you know what they wanted right now? They wanted a precious ointment because they wanted some frankincense and myrrh because hog manure does not smell like frankincense and manure. Frankincense and myrrh really smell nice, precious in an agricultural context. The contrast makes it smell even better. Maybe in the sense of the context of Ecclesiastes 7, you get the precious ointment versus the smell of death. Didn't a lady come and anoint Jesus' body for burial while he was still alive? And I think, I think his point here in verse one, as as good as a precious ointment is, that sweet smell of a precious ointment, how much more a good name? Even the sweetest of ointments, nobody over there took any of it with them. But a good name. You can leave a good name behind. You leave a good name while you're alive, and you can leave a good name after you die. So do we have a good name? <clears throat> then he goes to this, this issue about the day of death being better than the day of birth. You, you look at that, the day of death, better than the day of birth. Really? Yes, really. Really? Now, we have to be careful when we read our Old Testaments and make sure that we don't read into the Old Testaments things that were not revealed until the New Testament came, thinking that Solomon had the fullness of revelation like we do. So the understanding about, for instance, what happens at death and what what about the afterlife, as we say, what happened? What does that look like? We don't really get detailed teaching on that until the New Testament. So we, we, can't, we don't want to say certain things about what Solomon knew or didn't, knew, didn't know. But Solomon knew this much. He knew that what happened after death is better than what we experience here under the sun. Now, I, I know you might be thinking that's not the case for the lost, and I would agree with you. But Solomon's not writing this for the benefit of the lost. He's writing this for the benefit of God's people. Just like Paul can say, to depart is to be with Christ, for that is far better. Solomon can say the same thing, looking forward to the promises not yet, not yet fulfilled. We live in the realm of the promises having been fulfilled. But Solomon can look forward not yet having the promises fulfilled, and he can say that the day of death is better than the day of birth because that. Because the day of birth throws you into this realm, in this age, as, as Paul would say, a, a crooked and twisted generation. There's a lot of stuff going on in this crooked and twisted generation. That's what makes it crooked and twisted. But once you die, you don't experience that anymore. Solomon can say, just like Paul, to depart is far better. Even as a guy like him, who had everything in an earthly sense, he can look back and see what a fool he was. Just because you have a gift doesn't mean that you always use it rightly. You still have the responsibility to be a steward of whatever gift you've been given and use it well. Solomon had the gift of wisdom and discernment and he clearly did not use it well all the time. And he wants us to know this is the lesson I've learned from not doing that, you all. He doesn't want people to go down the same road that he, that he went down. He's already said that earlier in the book, verse 2 of chapter 4. You're born, you have all the travails in this life, and they're in front of you, looking out the windshield of your life going forward. And yes, the child of God, do we have many blessings in this life? Yes, but we also enter the kingdom through much tribulation, right? How much better, Solomon says, you have the tribulation in your rearview mirror than out the windshield, on the timeline of your life. Now let me read verses 2, 3, and 4, and I'm going, to read, I'm going to leave out some phrases because I want you to see the repetition that Solomon's using to make his point here in verses 2, 3, and 4. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And Look at the comparisons there. He compares the house of mourning against the house of feasting. He compares sorrow against laughter. He compares the heart of the wise against the heart of fools. He contrasts the house of mourning against the house of mirth. And let's talk about this. He uses the phrase twice here, the house of mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. People tended to die at home in those days. People were not shuttled off somewhere apart from the house where... The moment of death happened apart from family, loved ones. And the house then became a house of mourning. Jacob's case, they mourned for seven days. In our day, we know that we'd be talking about some type of funeral service, whether it happens here in somebody's home. Um, Cheryl's mom's funeral happened in, in her brother's house. Or you go to a funeral home where that sort of thing happens. Solomon says, we'd be better off at a funeral than a Golden Corral or the China Buffet. He says, we'd be better off at a funeral, better off at a funeral, in the sense he's talking about, better off at a funeral than at Nick and Destiny's reception next Saturday. Now, I'm not saying you don't go to the reception. Okay, <laughs> The reception is a good thing. Jesus went to a wedding, right? Okay, he's not saying you rule it out. Going to a wedding is a good thing. Going to the reception is a good thing. Feasting, going to have food? All right. All right. Feasting is not bad, but how much more? Better for the state of your heart. Verse 3. For by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Being in a house of mourning is supposed to do something to us that affects us in a way that being at a wedding reception or being at Golden Corral or the China Buffet affects us. He wants us to lay to heart what we experience, what we see, what we think about when we're at a house of mourning or we're at a funeral. I just have to, I have to emphasize this. He's not saying those other things are bad. Remember, he said in chapter 3, there's a time for this and a time for that and a time for this and a time for that. He said in chapter 3, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. He said in chapter 3, there's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. Even Baptists, okay? But I know that we don't like to think about death. Sometimes we have to. But Solomon wants to think about it not just when it's our. He wants us to think about it when other people die. Death stinks. More ways than one. Let's be frank here. Death stinks. Death is not the way it was supposed to be. Death is a byproduct of man's rebellion against the living God. And we have that reality in this age of physical death and all the horrors that lead up to death. Not everybody dies in their sleep a nice, peaceful death, having been perfectly healthy up until the time of their death. Some people die horrible deaths. Some people die lingering deaths. Some people die terribly painful, lingering, horrible deaths. And that's the reality of life in this age. So we live with death in this age. You get to be my age, you get to be our brother's age here, people we know die. We still read the obituaries in the newspaper up north and and read the funeral home news and see people we know die all the time. Uh, I mean, a really good friend of ours just had a stroke, died a couple months ago. My if if I were to go to it, my fiftieth high school reunion would be in two years. I haven't been to to that since my tenth. I don't think I'm going to the fiftieth. But how many people that I graduated with? Seven hundred eighty-six people. How many of them are still alive? How much more so this young man here, who would have his eightieth coming up in a few years? How many people that he graduated with are still alive? That's the reality of life in this age. And I know people, people have said to me they don't like going to funerals because it makes them uncomfortable. The Holy Spirit says right here, it's good for you to go, regardless of your level of comfort with it. And I'll talk about our cultural bent to discourage the biblical practice of mourning and, and sadly the the mindset of some in the church to discourage a biblical practice of mourning in a minute. But you might be one of those people who doesn't like going to funerals. Scripture says if you're wise, you go to funerals. The heart of the wise, verse 4, is in the house of mourning. Even if it's uncomfortable. You want to know what's really uncomfortable at a funeral? Being one of the people sitting up here in the front row. You think it was comfortable for Rudy at his grandmother's funeral? You think it was comfortable for Christina at Victor's? You think it was comfortable for Shamika's at her brother's? You think it was comfortable for us at our son's funeral? You think, yeah, I, I wouldn't know what to say. I get it. I don't know what to say at a funeral to people. I cry at funerals since our sons. Every time I cry because the memories of his funeral come back to me every time. It's hard for me to be at a funeral. But it's the right thing to do. Now, I know Solomon's context here is not about being there for the other person, but that is the right thing to do. It's to be there in support of the person who is mourning the death of the loved one. But beyond that, for your own benefit, Scripture says, go, because the wise go. And they lay to heart what a funeral causes you to think about, regardless of your level of comfort about this. Again, we, we've sanitized death in our age. We've cleaned it up. We don't smell the smell of death like, like people in Solomon's age would have. You know, we don't see what happens when bodies begin to decay. And verse 2 just affirms what Scripture says. Elsewhere, death is the end of all mankind. It is appointed for man to die once, then face judgment. You're young. You're 22. You're 17. You're 43. You're 50. You're 32. You're 41. Whatever. You don't want to think about dying. And I got news for you. You're dying today. You're one day closer than you were yesterday. Every one of you. Not just people with white hair on their head. Every one of you. You know people who didn't make it to my age. You're dying today. What are you considering about your death? You don't know when it's going to happen, but what are you doing about it? In in, in that movie, The Shawshank Redemption, it's almost 30 years ago now. came out in 1994. There's a a famous line that gets said twice in that movie. Andy and Red both say it. They say, you better get busy living or get busy dying. I'm going to hold as a Christian, it's not an either-or. We need to get busy living, and we need to get busy dying. What do I mean? I said earlier, strive after the holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Love God. Love your neighbor. Those are things we do as we live. We want to grow in our sanctification. We want to grow in our holiness. But we know as we're doing that, we're all getting ready to die. When that image from literature comes up, the Grim Reaper, when the Grim Reaper visits your life, are you ready? That's why he wants us to do this. He wants us to consider this because this is serious. Yeah, love God, love your neighbor. Absolutely. Yeah, live, but be ready to die. We, t- we tend to think that, well, you know, it's only certain people who do certain things, you know. Some, some missionary out there in some dangerous land has to be ready to die. But you know what? You who work from home and never do anything other than what I do, sit at a computer all day, i got to be ready to die too. Because death visits us all. And, and you know, the thing is, are we, are, we, are we holding on to Jesus when we consider our death? Are we holding on to Jesus? Are we hanging on? Do we have the cross in mind? Are we thinking about things that are above? And, I, and I, have to, I know I have to be careful here because people with sensitive consciences may take this where I don't want you to take it. I don't want you to take it and become so overly self-examination oriented or so introspective you get paralyzed and you lose whatever assurance you had. I don't want that to be the result of this message. I want you to have more assurance as a result of this message. Because the only hope we have is Christ. By faith. We embrace Him by faith. When you're lying on your deathbed, if you, if you are somebody who lies on your deathbed and have time to consider your death, I did in 2011. I was in the hospital for five days and they were waiting for me to die for the first three. It's crazy how at much at peace I was. I was surprised. Because God gave me grace. And I was ready to die. There was no fear there. But you don't need to be in a hospital bed waiting to die to have that peace as you consider your own death today. So I don't want you to throw your assurance in the garbage can here just because you think about the day of your death. That's, that's a concern about saying what I'm saying here today, but just don't do that. I'll tell you where my real concern is, though, is that we have a current church discipline case. I won't name names. You know, you who attend regularly know who I'm talking about. That case, he may well be watching this right now. I am scared to death for that case. Because just like me, He might die tomorrow. I might die today. am, Am I ready? Is He ready? Can people be deceived? Absolutely they can be deceived. And when people who are filled with the Spirit tell somebody else that they're deceived, I think people who are discerning need to listen to people who tell somebody they're deceived. About us, be ye not deceived. Where is our hope? What does our life what is our name? What is our good name? You 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 think about things like that and I just I mean I mean I'm scared to death about that case. I just am and you, maybe it's because I'm old. You get older, at least I get older. I look at things differently. You know, perspective. Solomon's perspective changes because he's an old man here. And, and you look at things in a way that you didn't look at them before. Let me give an example from the last couple of days. And if, if, like I said earlier, I was a disc jockey 40 plus years ago. Now, you say that today and people think you're in a club spinning records and scratching, that sort of thing. No. <laughs> Back back in the day, we were still, actually, when I started, we were still playing real records. <laughs> and and I was playing what what back then was called Top 40 or Contemporary Hit Radio, playing all the hits of the day, okay, and playing the hits of the past as well. And there are some songs I have not played in 40 years, and I'm still sick of them. Don't get me started on the Pina Colada song, okay? <laughs> I mean, I, I can't stand to hear that. It's like nails on the blackboard sort of thing. But, but I still listen to the music of that age. Yes, your elder does, okay? <laughs> and, and twice in the last three days, I had something hit me. I'm trying to think about what I'm gonna say here today. Thursday night, I'm listening to the band Heart. Okay, now again, archaic cultural references way over the head of a lot of people in this room. I'm listening to the band Heart with Anne and Nancy Wilson, They're at a tribute to Led Zeppelin. Yes, I said Led Zeppelin in church. They're at a tribute to Led Zeppelin at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. You got all the famous people there 10 years ago. And if you know anything about Led Zeppelin, you know the song of songs for Led Zeppelin is Stairway to Heaven. I know, I know. okay. And Robert Plant, the lead singer for Led Zeppelin, said he had gotten tired of singing Stairway to Heaven because so many people had butchered it over the years. Well, Hart and Nancy Wilson and their band come out and they're going to sing Stairway to Heaven in front of Led Zeppelin. And they come out and they sing it and it is great. I mean, they have a choir in there. I mean, by the end of the song, I'm in tears. Uh, on the, they're showing the video. Robert Plant, the lead singer for Led Zeppelin, is in tears over this. But when I'm thinking about this related to this sermon, this was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, Robert Plant was 65 years old. Now he's 75 years old. He's going to die. What happens to Robert Plant when he dies? What happens to Jimmy Page? What happens to John Paul Jones? What happens to Ann Wilson? Ann Wilson's 73, Nancy Wilson's 69. I'm 65. These are my contemporaries. Are they ready to go? Or do they just think that, well, I die, nothing happens? Or, or are they universalist? Everybody goes to this ethereal place where there's people floating on clouds? But in the context of the sermon, it makes me think about my death. Come, Lord Jesus. Yeah, I want Him to come, but He may not come before I die. Am I ready to go? I don't know where those musicians are at. Ecclesiastes 3 said God has planted eternity in the human heart. They know inherently there's something after this life. They can't say they don't know. Well, they will confess they don't know, but deep down in their heart they truly know and they're suppressing it in their sin, just like Romans 1 says people suppress their knowledge of God in their sin, in their unrighteousness. But even with that knowledge they have that Ecclesiastes 3 says every human being has, are they thinking about eternity? I don't know. What about when we go? All that music. Led Zeppelin's not taking their music with them. The music will be left behind, I know. But at the end of this age, their music's going to be gone too. It's going to burn. God has planted eternity in the human heart. Solomon wants us to think about our death because it's going to happen. And you think about your death when you are at a funeral mentioning somebody else's death. And when when we go to these places of mourning, it's supposed to make me think about my day of death. The living will lay it to heart is what verse 2 says. That's you and me. We're supposed to take what we see and think and experience at a funeral and have it in here, implant it in here, and have it affect what we do. Where's our hope? Where's our trust? Is our hope really in Christ and in Christ alone? Or is it in Christ and my performance 1%? Better not be 1% because that 1% will damn you. It's 100%. It's not 99 to 44, 100. It's like ivory soap was pure back in the ads 50 years ago. It's 100% Christ and Christ alone. So what are we thinking about? You know, are we thinking about the things that are above? Are we thinking about that which Colossians 3 says we should think about? You, know, you go to a funeral. I don't like crying in public. I'm a guy. I don't like crying in public. But I do, and I go anyway because it matters what we we do for other people at a funeral. But this passage says it matters what we do for the state of our own soul by going to a funeral. Verse 3 tells us that our hearts are made glad by the sadness of our faces. Now, what's that? That seems a little bit paradoxical, doesn't it? Sadness makes you glad? Yes, yes because it makes us think about our encounter with death. And if we think about our encounter with death, should we not be thinking then, to depart is to be with Christ, because it's far better. We can say, when we think about this, this sadness that we experience at a funeral, we can then say, we can respond with that by saying along with Paul, death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul, even as he writes about the resurrection there on the last day of God's people, he's also the one who told us how we're supposed to mourn in 1 Thessalonians 4. He didn't tell the Thessalonians, don't mourn. They're with Christ. He says, don't mourn the way the world mourns. This is how you mourn. He says, you mourn with hope because the twinkling of an eye, the sound of the trumpet, the cry of command, the voice of the archangel, Christ is going to come and descend and gather His people and we will meet Him in the air. That ought to make us feel warm, loved, being expectant, anticipating that. We mourn, but we mourn with hope. We mourn with hope about what is to come. Jesus mourned. Shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. I know that when you do your word study, it shows there was a little bit of anger in that weeping, but regardless, he still wept. He mourned over Jerusalem. Matthew 23. It 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 saddens me a little bit when I'm at a funeral and we get told don't mourn don't be sad here. Now I get the spirit of what's being said at a funeral, especially the funeral of a Christian. Yes, they've gone to something that's far better. But mourning is biblical. It's okay. We can still have the joy of knowing somebody is with the Lord as we mourn with our tears. They're not mutually exclusive. I mean, I, I, I can still remember clear as day. I'm sitting in a small group. It's at Chippewa Correctional Facility, either 97 or 98. And one of the guys, I still remember his first and last name, and he says he would not attend a church that had a lot of funerals. He said, I will not attend a church that has a lot of funerals because I believe in healing. One of the guys said amen. I understand now. I understand... No, I understand to a degree where he's coming from. okay. I'm with him. I believe in healing as well. But I also believe the Bible says it's appointed for a man to die once, then face judgment. They're both true. So there's nothing wrong with a church that has a lot of funerals. He's just denying a biblical truth there. You know, our, our hope is not to be in a rapture to get us out of here before a tribulation. Our hope is is in Christ and in Christ alone and in the power of the Spirit who will enable us to get through the tribulation, entering the kingdom through much tribulation. And then there will come a point when we die. Then we go to be with the Lord. Then we wait for Revelation 21 and 22 and the resurrection of the body when body and soul are reunited and we are in the full manifest presence of the Lamb and His Father forever. So we think about death think about death because death can make us, as Christians, think about the resurrection. I know sometimes it can be easy to overlook the resurrection of the lost. But John 5 tells us there are two resurrections that are going to happen. It's the resurrection to life, to the fullness, the consummation of our eternal life for God's people, and then the resurrection of judgment, or the second death that our Bible calls it. Robert Plant's going to die. Aretha Franklin did die. I'm going to die. So are you. Going to funerals is profitable for your soul. It is profitable for your heart according to the Word of God. Because it makes us think about serious matters of life and death. And we can go to a funeral and mourn and shed tears knowing that if our brother or sister is truly our brother or sister, they are with the Lord and they, they are experiencing something far beyond what we can imagine at this point. But we still have the loss here to deal with. We miss them. God has wired us to mourn in this age. We should mourn over the consequences of sin, and physical death is one of the consequences of sin. We should not become numb to that. We should not sear our conscience with regard to that. Tears are a proper and right response to the death of people whom we love. And when we see others shedding tears at the death of their loved ones, we just need to bear with them. And be there for them. Let's pray. Now, father, I know this is a sober, somber subject. But Father, it's, we, we live with it in this age. We live with it because it's the consequence of the rebellion of our first father, Adam. Father help us to apply what we what we see in this passage even when it's hard. Help us to think about what you want us to think about